If you can imagine it with eschatology, it exists, all right? You'll find somebody out there holding it. And I remember uh, realizing that, hey, they had Bible verses too, and they had arguments, and they had counter-arguments, and, and so I realized that my view wasn't the only one, and these people were godly people, and they were conservative evangelicals, and we just saw differently on this issue. And so I realized it wasn't uh, a big thing. And that led me to my second observa- observation, is that this isn't the most crucial issue when it comes to Christian faith. That, uh, you know, I was at the same time battling Jehovah's Witnesses over here on the Trinity and the deity and humanity of Christ and battling other people over here on whether you have to work to keep your salvation and things like this. And I realized there are other issues that are a little bit more pressing and I needed to balance uh, some of my end times exuberance with some of that. And then the third thing I realized, though, in chatting and discussing uh, friendly with uh, people with different perspectives, especially on the rapture, is that even though it may not be the most central issue, it's not entirely irrelevant. And just recently, I had a conversation with uh, someone who believes the church is going to go through the whole uh, seven-year tribulation to the end. And as we were discussing our expectations and, and such, I realized that that guy was preparing for the Antichrist. That guy's getting ready for all kinds of bad things and looking on the news to see who might the Antichrist be. And, and his whole idea of being prepared for the end times was very Antichrist focused. Very much, he had a lot of angst, a lot of nervousness, and a lot of, frankly, fear. And on the other hand, you know, call me naive, but. Uh, I'm waiting for Jesus to come back. You know, it was very Christ-focused. Uh, what I'm waiting for the Lord to return. And so, I, yes, I have views on, on how things are going to play out in the tribulation. But I, didn't, I don't have this fear and this worry that I might not be able to identify the Antichrist. And so it really is, does affect what you're planning for, what you're preparing for, uh, whether you are well, I hate to put it this way, antichrist-focused or Christ-focused in your uh, expectations. So it's not completely irrelevant, but I do want you to know that if you have a different view than me, uh, I'm going to talk through some different views and give you the, the best arguments, I think, for a pre-tribulation rapture. If you have a different view than me, it's okay. You know, if you want to convert to my side, that's perfectly acceptable, but uh, I'm not going to uh, think poorly of you. So the title of this series uh, is two parts, tonight and then tomorrow morning, is The Rapture Revisited. What I'm going to do tonight, uh, and you can see there's notes, uh, I believe they're, yeah, there it is. You can kind of almost in the middle there, session one and four, The Rapture Revisited, parts one and two. Um, I'm going to get us through our outline to about, uh, well, through Parts 1 and 2, section 1 and 2, the rapture event in Scripture, and then classical arguments for the pre-tribulation rapture. Those of you who are familiar with these discussions, uh, probably most, if not all, of the arguments I'm going to present tonight are going to be very familiar to you. I'm going to present them in a way that might be a little unique. You may not have heard them that way before. But for the most part, they are what I call the classical arguments or the arguments that uh, are making a, the a cumulative case for the timing of the rapture. But first of all, some of you may have 
not be too familiar. My guess is that if you're coming to a prophecy conference, you have some interest in this uh, and are, some, are familiar with some of the terms. But on the other hand, some of you may be here because you're curious or somebody may brought you. So I will define a couple of these things. When we talk about the rapture, what do we mean? The rapture, it's clearly taught in scripture unless you approach it with a really kind of an allegorical uh, way of looking at things. But if you take the Bible at face value, there's going to be this thing we call the rapture. The primary text for the rapture doctrine is 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, and then it's context. And it says this, Paul writing to the Thessalonians says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. That means those who have died. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So now he's dealing with two categories of people. Those who have died, believers in Christ who have died, and those who are believing in Christ and are alive. He says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, so that's the resurrection, the dead in Christ will rise first in their new glorious uh, resurrection bodies. But then we who are alive, what's going to happen to us? He says, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. This word caught up, the Greek word is harpazo, and in the Latin translation of the scriptures, it's the verb uh, rapere, which means rapture. This is where we get our word rapture from. It means the catching up of the saints. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. It's supposed to be a source of comfort and hope for us. So that's the primary passage for this event called the rapture, the catching up. There is a parallel passage. It doesn't mention the catching up, but because of the details, he's talking about the same event uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 53. Um, those of you who have ever sung Handel's Messiah, you'll know these words. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. So we aren't all going to die. All of us, however, will be changed into this immortal, glorified state. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we, those of us who are alive, will be changed. This perishable must put on imperishable. This mortal must put on immortality. And so these together paint this picture. The dead in Christ, when he comes in the sky, are going to be raised, immortal, imperishable, just like Jesus' resurrection body, and we who are alive and are waiting will be transformed as well, and all of us together will be caught up. That's the rapture. So, unless you don't take the Bible at face value or don't believe it, the event is really non-controversial. Someday this is going to happen. The question is, and where you see debate in discussion is when will this event take place? Not, not, not like what day on the calendar, or is it going to be in the year 2012, uh, 2024, or 3012 or something. The question is, when will it take place in relationship to other prophetic events, specifically the seven-year tribulation? And so we, uh, in this room, most of us, at least the pastors and teachers from these churches believe in a, a future seven-year tribulation period preceding Christ's descent from heaven to establish the millennial kingdom. It looks something like this. You have a tribulation period coming that'll last seven years. 
And then you'll have this millennium, a thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, which technically is the first thousand years of Christ's eternal reign. His kingdom is forever. Um, he's going to sit on David's throne forever and ever. Uh, however, there is this thousand-year reign, the beginning of which ends the first resurrection of the righteous, and the, at the end will be the great white throne judgment, the resurrection of the wicked unto judgment. We're not going to talk about the millennium, really, but this will give you a, a, an orientation. So when I talk about the return, I'm talking about the return of Christ as king. And so where does the rapture happen? There are really there are a handful of views. Uh, there are a few main views. The first one is the pre-tribulation rapture. Pre, meaning before the seven-year tribulation. Then you have uh, the mid-tribulation rapture, somewhere in the middle, roughly at three and a half years in, before things get really, really bad, before the ation of the tribulation. And then you have what's called the pre-wrath rapture, that at the very end of the tribulation, described in Revelation 16, you have God pouring out his bowls of wrath. And right before the God pours out his bowls of wrath, the rapture will happen to rescue us from that. And then you have those who hold that, well, it's really all just one event. As Christ is coming down to set up his kingdom, the dead in Christ will rise, the living will be raptured, and they'll meet, be met, meeting in the air, and the, it, they'll turn around and come right back down, and, you know, it'll be a little chaotic maybe, but God will work it all out. And so that's the post-trib rapture. After all the judgments and everything, we are going to be raptured. Then there is a, another view. You don't see it frequently. It's sort of the partial rapture. And a couple of variations of this, but one, the main one, and it was kind of more popular in the 19th century, actually, among especially the holiness uh, movement, where if you were a real super saint, if you were really holy and filled with the Spirit when the event happened, you'd be taken. The nominal Christians, the Christians who weren't quite walking with the Lord, would be left behind. And possibly, there may be subsequent raptures in between where people might be taken up um, along the way. Uh, we're going to primarily deal, though, with the pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, pre-wrath, some of these views. If the terminology is confusing for you, I will d define these uh, continually throughout the, uh, throughout the presentation. All right, so going back to the question, I'm just going to tip my hand to tell you my view is the pre-tribulation rapture, and this is where it's all headed. I'm going to be presenting my case for this from the classical arguments. Um, so this is going to be the view that I'm going to lead us toward. But we're going to deal with seven classic arguments for the pre-tribulation rapture. Um, pre-trib, mid-trib, pre-wrath, or post-trib. And as I go through these, what I think we're going to see is that given all of these seven arguments, the post-trib, pre-wrath, and mid-trib positions get weaker and weaker. They're not able to accommodate all of the, the evidence, is what I'm going to suggest today. I'm going to bring us to the point of really uh, pre-trib or maybe mid-trib, and then tomorrow I'm going to present um, what is the original uh, argument, exegetical argument for the pre-tribulation rapture. Uh, so the seven arguments I'm going to present tonight in rather rapid fashion, unfortunately, um, are the last trumpet, what is this last trumpet thing, rescue from wrath, the post-trib plus millennial problem, and I'll define all of these, removal of the restrainer in 2 Thessalonians 2, 
return with and for the saints, this distinction, missing church in Revelation 4 through 19, and then the imminent return of Christ um, in the New Testament. All right, let's begin with the last trumpet. We saw already that uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17, Paul actually tells us when this rapture is going to take place, doesn't he? He says, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound. And I have uh, the Greek terms in there, salping, salpinge, uh, salpizo, sorry, um, is the term for the trumpet. Just like, anybody play the trumpet here? Same thing, just a little different. All right, and it's interesting, the noun and the verb are really the same. You trumpet the trumpet, salpings and salpizo. Now, some people identify the last trumpet with the seventh trumpet in the book of Revelation. You have the series of seals, then you have the series of trumpets, then you have the series of seven bowls. And they say, well, there you are, Revelation 11, the seventh trumpet, last trumpet, makes sense. There's not an eighth trumpet, the seventh trumpet is the last trumpet. The problem with that view is, 1 Thessalonians was written in, the, in AD 50, when he talks about the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised. And then 1 Corinthians, where he says the last trumpet, was written just five years later in 55. And the book of Revelation, with the seven trumpets, wasn't written until 95-ish. And so when Paul is communicating to his original readers that the, the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, I, I don't... We, we can't be exactly sure what they had in mind, but I tell you what they didn't have in mind was the seventh trumpet of Revelation, which wasn't going to even be revealed for another 40 plus years, okay? So Paul had to mean something in his time, in the 50s, that his audience would have understood. Also, there are differences. We're not gonna go through this chart, but you can see, whereas 1 Thessalonians and 1 Corinthians, we can tell from the events that are described related to this, the last trumpet, they're talking about the same event, just filling in some details. Whereas the seventh trumpet, the only thing in common is that there's a trumpet. In fact, he doesn't even call it in, this, in the book of Revelation, the last trumpet. It says the seventh angel sounded. And so there's not a lot of compelling reason to equate these two things and then place the rapture at the sort of end of the tribulation with the seventh trumpet. So then the question is, what last trumpet is Paul referring to? Now, there's a lot of discussion, debate about this, and this is not my clearest argument. But what I think he's talking about is in, these people were familiar with Old Testament prophecies about the day of the Lord and the coming judgments and the, the time of tribulation. They were anticipating this, and there are a lot of events uh, related to it. And interestingly, these Old Testament passages have this trumpet related to it. It's a day of the sounding of the trumpet, uh, warning people that the day of the Lord is near. Now, the day of the Lord is not a single day or 24-hour day. It's a time during which God visits in judgment and deliverance. And it usually involves a whole series of events that take months, if not years, uh, invasion of armies and all kinds of judgments and plagues and different things. So one of these passages, Joel 2, he says, blow a trumpet, he says, literally trumpet the trumpet, in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain, let the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. 
And so this is the coming day of the Lord, which we call now, the thing we're waiting for is this tribulation period, the day of the Lord that's yet coming. Zephaniah 1, 14 through 18. Near is the great day of the Lord. Near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it, the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day. A day of trouble and distress. A day of destruction and desolation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because you get the picture. Not a very pleasant series of events that you want to be part of. And so this day of the Lord is announced as near. The last warning is this trumpet. So when Paul says the last trumpet, because the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, First Thessalonians 4 says we'll be caught up. It's, I think he's relating this to the expected end times. The day of the Lord judgment that's coming and the trumpet is the announcement that it's near. If that's the case, it doesn't happen at the very end. Uh, I'm going to warn you about what just happened. You're warning about what is about to happen. The day of the Lord is near. Now, what though do we mean by the day of the Lord? It doesn't specify the day of the Lord in the Old Testament as strictly seven years or three and a half years or somewhere in between. And so this is where you're going to see a diversity of opinions. Some people, like me, I think the day of the Lord is a reference to the whole tribulation period. There, it gets worse, it gets more intense. The wrath of God, it's just coming in a trickle and he's calling people to repentance. It, it increases in severity and eventually culminates with the bowls of wrath. So if that's the whole tribulation, the day of the Lord, the pre-trib rapture explains this. If it's just the second half of the tribulation, the great tribulation, the last three and a half years, then the mid-trib rapture would actually satisfy this idea of the last trumpet. Some people limit it just to the very end when God pours out his bowls of wrath, uh, and then the pre-wrath rapture would actually satisfy that. So identifying the trumpet as that which announces the day of the Lord doesn't necessarily argue for a pre-tribulation rapture. It depends on how you define the day of the Lord. However, what it seems to do is sort of weaken a post-trib position and a pre-wrath position because it's not really giving people ample warning. I think the trumpet is a warning that the day is coming. All right, rescue from wrath. I've already mentioned that uh, we are to look forward to the coming of Christ in the rapture with hope. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 says, For God has not destined us for wrath. This is very important. It's not God's plan to pour out wrath on his disciples and his people. But for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now some people today will read this and they'll think he's talking about the wrath of hell, of the afterlife. That's not most of the time when, God, when the New Testament talks about judgment and wrath. They're talking about the coming wrath on this earth. What we're going to call temporal judgment in as part of history, and that he's going to deliver us from this wrath that's coming, that is the tribulation, the day of the Lord. Now, the question is, and this is not really controversial, that God is not going to pour out his wrath. There's no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8 says. So God's not angry at us. His wrath has been poured out for us on Christ at the cross. So if you trust in Christ, your 
wrath is taken care of at, Christ, at the cross. So how, though, is God going to rescue us from wrath? And when is he going to rescue us from wrath? And what is this wrath he's talking about? So there are several questions that come into this. The first question is, how does God save us from the wrath? Is he going to save us from protect, by protecting us within the midst of the wrath? So all this wrath is going on around us, but we're going to be sort of with a force shield around us and protected? Or does he remove us from the place of the wrath until the wrath has been poured out? So a, a diagram you can kind of look up here. There are two models and two views on this. One is protection in the presence of the wrath, sort of like Israel and Egypt. There, are, there is Old Testament precedence for this as the as the plagues are being poured out, the 10 plagues on Egypt, um, God is sparing his people. The darkness is on Egypt, but there's light among the people of Israel. The firstborn die in Egypt, but because of the blood on the mantle, the Hebrew children are spared. And so there is a precedence for being spared in the midst of wrath. Daniel in the lion's den is another one. He was surrounded by all kinds of furry wraths that could have devoured him, but God protected him in the midst of that. And so in that case, you have the wrath comes, destroys the wicked, but leaves the righteous behind. But there's also another pattern you see in the Old Testament, and that is removal from the presence of wrath. So Noah, from the flood, well, no, he was in the, no, he wasn't under, the, the wrath was the water, and he was floating above that. Didn't matter how much water was poured out, God's people were floating above it. They were protected from it. Put in the ark, doors closed, and they are removed from the presence of that. Believe me, on that day, you knew whether you were in the wrath or, or outside of the wrath. The other one is Lot from Sodom. And God sends the angels. I mean, Lot was kind of a doorknob, wasn't he? Do I really have to go there? Can I just go to that city over there? It's just a little one, you know. He's fighting with the people who are trying to save him. But still, even... Lot is taken out of the presence of the wrath and is poured out. And so in this case, you would have the person removed, wrath comes, destroys the wicked, and then the, uh, the righteous can return. Now, interestingly, I think uh, the New Testament, when it talks about the return of Christ, what kinds of examples does Jesus give? And in fact, even Second Peter. He says, as it was in the day of Noah, as it was in the right? He uses Lot and Noah as the examples. So I think we have a reason to think that it's salvation from the midst of the wrath. Uh, God has not destined us for wrath. Notice that even in this text, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, turn there once. Okay. He begins in verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, that you have times and seasons of what? Well, he says, you know that the, you're the fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Wait, what is he talking about here? Well, he's talking about the same thing he just got done talking about in chapter 4, which is the return of Christ and the trumpet and the resurrection, the rapture. And he gets to the end of this section and says, um, God has not appointed us to wrath, but to salvation. The context is the rapture and the return of Christ. So it seems that that's how God is going to rescue us from the coming wrath. Also, uh, 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 through 10. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Turn from the former ways, serve God, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. 
So as we're waiting for Christ to come, we're waiting for him to rescue us from the coming wrath. You put these two passages together and it seems that this is in the context of the rapture of the church. So the context for rescue from the coming wrath is the coming of the Son from heaven. Turn to 2 Peter. Oh, sorry, that's forward. Got a little excited there. Go to 2 Peter chapter 2. And uh, Peter here is using several Old Testament examples that he's going to now draw a New Testament kind of conclusion here. Verse 4. He says, God, if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, committed them to chains of gloomy, dark, gloomy darkness, to be kept until the judgment. And if he did not spare the angel, so he's dealt with uh, those who have, were in the spirit realm, you know, they're not on earth anymore. They're down in gloomy darkness, being preserved for judgment. So even if you die before the judgments come, you're not off the hook. You're just being kept until judgment. So he's dealt with those. But what about those who are alive in the ancient world? When the judgment came, he says, he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example. Listen, these are an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly in the future. So it's Noah and the flood, Lot and Sodom. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, um, verse 9, then, if God did this in the Old Testament, he did this in the Old Testament, then look at the application. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. The term here is perosmos, which in Revelation 3.10 is used for the time of tribulation, the trial that is about to come upon the whole world. This doesn't necessarily mean temptations or trials. I think Peter, in this context, and he's about to get into the end of the world in in chapter three, he's talking about the coming tribulation, the great global trial that's going to come. And he's using these rescue from the presence of wrath as illustrations or uh, examples of what God is going to do in the future. So he says, the Lord knows how, he has practice at this, How to rescue, same word as um, Jesus rescuing us from the coming wrath, from tribulation or trial, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So I think even Peter is seeing and applying this pattern of rescue from the presence of wrath. Then Revelation 3.10 says, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. So kept out of the hour. I will keep you outside of this hour of testing, this time of testing. Same word, in fact, that Peter uses, the coming trial. And uh, seems to imply a complete removal from the midst of that time. So I think taken together, we can make some observations or some conclusions. Christ's return is associated with the saints' rescue from the coming wrath. Saw that in Thessalonians. Second, God's past rescue of saints from the presence of God's earthly wrath is a model or a type or a foreshadowing or an example of his future rescue from wrath. And I think then this makes perfect sense that the rapture is the means by which we are taken out of the place of wrath. Now you'd think we've solved the problem 
But now the question is, what do we mean by the wrath? What is the wrath from which the church is to be rescued? Now notice that it says he rescues us from the coming wrath. It doesn't say he rescues us from God's direct wrath of the bowls of wrath on the earth. He just says from the coming wrath. In the book of Revelation, there are a couple different kinds of wrath. There is the bowls of wrath at the very, very end of the tribulation. And if that's all you mean by wrath, then the pre-wrath rapture would be a rescue from the presence of wrath, right? But there's also the wrath of Satan. Take a look at, which is part of God's judgment. He's allowing Satan um, kind of a, a free reign. Uh, allows the Antichrist to rise. Nothing happens uh, apart from God's allowance. And in a sense, by turning over this liberty to cause destruction to, to Satan, it is God. You know, when God's grace is removed and his mercy is removed, wrath is the default. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The only thing keeping any of us here one breath more is the mercy and grace of God. When he starts removing that progressively through the tribulation, that's wrath. And I think this is exactly what you start to see from the very beginning. But you look at uh, Revelation 12, uh, the song of, uh, from heaven, verse 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath. So people in heaven, they're outside of wrath devil's wrath. People on earth, woe to you. The devil has come down in great wrath because he knows his time is short. So I kind of view the rescue from wrath as rescue from wrath, whether it's the devil's wrath or whether it's the bowls of wrath. But if you limit it just to the second half of the tribulation, and some do, it would be a mid-trib rapture. If you do what I do and see the wrath as progressively intensifying throughout the tribulation and really the bowls of wrath are the exclamation point, or the double or triple exclamation, or seven exclamation points, then um, uh, it would be a pre-wrath, uh, a pre-trib rapture. Okay, so that's the last trumpet, rescue from wrath. I think this has weakened the post-trib position significantly, has weakened the pre-wrath position, but let's move forward. There's this problem we're going to call it the, pre, the post-tribulation plus millennium problem. Now, what do I mean by this? Um, classic premillennialists, people who believe that Jesus is going to come back and establish a kingdom on earth, and what's he going to do? Well, what's going to happen is there's going to be a regathered remnant of Israel. Israel's going to be, all Israel will be saved there. That's part of the function of the tribulation. Israel comes out, uh, I think we'll probably hear more about that uh, in the second hour. But um, Israel's going to come out as a gathered nation. This is the king that forms the kingdom over which Christ is reigning, over the um, nation of Israel. But also through that, over all of the earth, the many, many saints, we are told in Revelation, are from tongues, tribes, peoples, and nations are going to repent and come to the Lord during the tribulation. And so these people who survive the tribulation... Jews and Gentiles, are going to still be in the same kind of body you and I have because they're going to repopulate the earth, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And it's really from those people that at the end of the millennium, Satan is able to deceive their great, 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 great grandchildren. 
because they're not going to be resurrected, glorified, and immortal and perfect uh, like the saints. Now, these can't be unsaved survivors of the tribulation. They just held on to the very end and somehow avoided God's final bowls of wrath. And, and somehow God in the other crowd when Christ separated the sheep from the goats. And it just doesn't seem that there's room in the New Testament for a millennial kingdom being started off with unsaved, unrighteous, wicked people who just 10 minutes earlier were worshiping the beast, you know, and cursing God for pouring out bowls of wrath. It doesn't seem plausible. And it doesn't seem plausible that there'll be last second converts, you know, wiping the mark from their head and forehead and, and saying, I'm sorry. And then you have these really mediocre. When you read about those who enter into the kingdom, that doesn't seem to be the picture that you get. These are people who endured to the end, who were faithful to the end. And so I, in fact, Revelation 16, though, when it talks about the bowls of wrath, it doesn't say anything about people repenting at the end. Instead, what, what's the response of the people who are being um, subject to the wrath of God? They cursed God. They did not repent, in fact, of their wickedness. So there gets to be a point when those who are saved are saved and those who are not are ultimately judged. These survivors will repopulate the earth during the millennium, and the descendants are those, like I said, who will be deceived. This is not a new doctrine. We are sometimes um, picked on as saying, where'd you get this crazy idea? I'm not going to read this, but uh, some of the early Christian premillennialists had the same idea, that there would be glorified, resurrected saints reigning with Christ over an earth that was populated by those who survived the tribulation. He says, respect to those whom the Lord will find in the flesh. He says, it's reference to them where the prophet says, those that are left shall multiply upon the earth. And they are going to be ruled over by the glorified saints. So this idea of resurrected glorified saints with Christ reigning over those who are in the flesh repopulating the world is not a new idea. There's a distinction made here. And so the problem is, if you hold to a strict post-tribulation rapture that Christ is going to come and judge and resurrect and rapture all the saints who have been waiting for him, the righteous, and judge the wicked... The problem is, you have living saints, dead saints during this age that continues on into the tribulation. Many die, but some survive to the end. The judgment of the sinners, rapture of all the righteous, resurrection and rapture. All the saints are glorified, and you have no humans to repopulate the world. They'll be coming down and, re and reigning over an empty earth because all the righteous have been raptured or resurrected. Now, if you hold a pre-wrath view, same kind of thing, except right before the wrath is poured out, you have a whole bunch of people scrambling and repenting. The problem is these are last-second converts, and the kingdom, the first citizens of the kingdom are last-second converts who were uh, previously worshiping the Antichrist. That's a problem for me. The only solutions would be a pre- or a mid-tribulation rapture. Even a mid-trib would allow for people to convert and for the next three and a half years and constitute those survivors of the tribulation. With this, a pre- or a mid-trib rapture, you have living tribulation saints, dead tribulation saints, of course, who are being martyred, judgment of the sinners, and the living tribulation saints are the ones who then repopulate the kingdom. The church and tribulation saints are glorified and reigning with Christ.
And so the result is surviving mortal righteous tribulation saints. That's a mouthful who can repopulate the kingdom. So I think that this is a pretty strong argument, not decisively for pre-tribulation, but I think it significantly weakens a post-trib and a pre-wrath position. As you can see in our little mat in the middle, they've been done some damage to by these arguments, I think. All right, the removal of the restrainer in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, this is somewhat controversial because there's some question about who is this restrainer or what is this restrainer. Paul, uh, Paul says to the Thessalonians, he says, you know what restrains him, talking about the man of lawlessness who's going to come, who's going to get people to worship him, set himself up in the temple of God and say he's God and Jesus is going to destroy him at his coming. He says, you know what's restraining him, what's holding him back now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And I think this is, Satan is already deceiving and sending little antichrists. But something's holding him back from completely unleashing his power and his wickedness. He says, only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth. So the question is, who or what is the restrainer? Now, there are, you look at commentaries on this, and, oh, man, the views run the gamut. But generally, some think, well, it's the Roman Empire. So the Roman Empire, as soon as the Roman Empire falls, is taken out of the way, that gives a vacuum for the Antichrist to step in. Or the emperor is holding back you know, by exercising justice. But wait a second, the emperor and the empire, the human government, this is sort of the source of which, isn't the Antichrist the, the ultimate evil emperor? Isn't he the ultimate incarnation of evil, bad government? <laughs> um, doesn't seem to make sense that government would hold back the ultimate evil government. Um, maybe it's the spirit. Maybe it's the church. Maybe it's the spirit working through the church. So there have been different views. We can't um, solve this clearly. The problem is, G, uh, Paul says, don't you remember when I was with you, I told you these things? Yeah, Paul, but could you remind us for those of us here in the 21st century? You know, they knew what he was talking about back then. But because they knew, he didn't elaborate, which is a little bit of a, a sad for us. But uh, what I do think, though, is it indicates that Paul, as he was going around planting churches, he spent, what, five weeks or so with the church in Thessalonica was teaching them details of eschatology. And I think that means he was going everywhere teaching these things. Everywhere he went, he was telling them about this restrainer and the, some of the things that could be expected. If that's the case, we should expect that echoes of this teaching of something holding back wickedness and holding back the end and holding back the man of lawlessness, we should see these echoing into the early church. And we actually do see something echoing into the early Christian writings that reflect some sort of force holding back wickedness and holding back the wrath of God. Uh, Ignatius of Antioch, right around 110. He says, make every effort to come together more frequently to give thanks and glory to God, talking to the church in Ephesus. For when you meet together frequently, the powers of Satan are overthrown and his destructiveness is nullified by the unanimity of your faith. Of your faith. 
There's nothing better than peace by which all warfare among those in heaven and those on earth is abolished. Spiritual warfare, the church engaging in spiritual warfare in the world, every time Satan thinks he's made progress, he's torn down. He tries again, he's torn down. He tries another country, another territory, torn down. Okay? That's our role today, engaging in the spiritual warfare. But what if we weren't? What if we weren't here to do that? Um, Justin Martyr. God delays causing the confusion and destruction of the whole world by which the wicked angels and demons and people will no longer exist because of the seed of the Christians who know that they are the cause of preservation in nature. Since it were not so, if it were not so, it would not have been possible for you to do and be impelled to do the things by evil spirits. But the fire of judgment would descend and utterly dissolve all things. And so he's saying the presence of the church, the Christians, is what's holding back God's wrath. Another writing, late second century to Diognetus, says, the soul is enclosed in the body, but it holds the body together. And though Christians are detained in the world as if in a prison, they in fact hold the world together. If it wasn't for the, we're kind of the, the speed bumps of the world, right? We kind of force people to slow down. We are, we are prophetic voice for what's right and what's true when we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. One more, a uh, couple more, Apology by Tertullian. He says, and for all that is said, if we compare the calamities of former times before the Christians showed up, they fall on us more lightly now since God gave Christians to the world. For from that time, virtue put some restraint on the world's wickedness, and men began to pray for the averting of God's wrath. Now that's interesting. I don't know how many times in the last several years I've heard people praying that God would come and uh, send Jesus and pour out his wrath on this horrible world. It's, this is seen frequently in the, in the early church. They were praying, God, hold back your wrath. We want more people to be saved. That's kind of an interesting perspective, isn't it? They're persecuting us. They're killing us. They're burning us at the stake and feeding us to lions. But hold off. We want more to be saved. That's ah, different. Shows you a different kind of mindset, different priorities. And then at Versus Gentis by Arnobius of Sica, he says, although you allege that those wars which you speak of were excited through hatred of our religion, it would not be difficult to prove that after the name of Christ was heard in the world, not only were they not increased, but they were even in great measure diminished by the restraining of, furi uh, of furious passions. And so I think if you look at what is the thing, what is the thing that's restraining evil that's echoing out of the apostolic age into the early church, it's not human government, it's not the emperor, it's the church working by the power of the spirit in its preaching and proclamation. The spirit is sent to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment and to proclaim the gospel and establish churches and convert people. And this work of the church, I think, is that which is restraining. But when will this restrainer be removed? I think that's what this is, allowing the Antichrist to be revealed. At latest, if you think that he's primarily talking about the, the big career of the Antichrist, at the end, it has to be at latest mid-trib, mid-tribulation. But the man of sin doesn't fall, uh, climb out of hell you know, he's not just suddenly going to appear on the earth midway through the tribulation. He has himself a career leading up to that, to Revelation 13. So 
I think it's talking about the whole career of the man of sin from the, the time he confirms a covenant with many for 1-7. That seems to be the beginning of the Antichrist's career for that 70th week of Daniel and Daniel 9. So I think this is a pretty compelling argument for a pre-trib rapture, although I can see how some people might be able to uh, get the mid-tribulation view to survive. So I'm going to, though, weaken both of those. You see, they've lightened into almost, they've almost vanished. Isn't that persuasive? Return with and for the saints. These last three go rather quickly, all right? Um, and each individually, you know, if, if this is all I had, I wouldn't hold to a pre-trib rapture, but I think taken together, they form a, a constellation of evidences that seem to be pointing in the same direction. So, a couple bullet points for each of these. First uh, Thessalonians 1.10, we saw, it says that we are to await the Son from heaven to rescue us from the coming wrath. So he's coming for the saints. He's going to rescue them and take them with. First Thessalonians 4.17 says that both the living and the dead will be raptured to meet the Lord in the air at this event. Revelation 19, at the very end, when you see the Christ coming down with the armies of heaven, he says that he's going to return at the end with his armies and saints. In Revelation 17, 14, it's uh, great. Chapters 17 and 18 are great because it's an interpreting angel coming in, interpreting several parts of, Paul, uh, of John's vision. And in 17, 14, he actually identifies those who are joining Christ at his descent in Revelation 19. He says, they, this is the Antichrist and his armies and all of these, will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. Why? Because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. I mean, this isn't going to be even much a conflict at all. There's no, this is a, 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 they're not evenly matched. Satan is not the opponent of God. Satan is the opponent of believers. Satan is a creature. And so, his greatest army he's ever conjured is going to be wiped out just like that. He's king of kings, lord of lords, and then he says, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And so you see the army of heaven descending with these, those with him. These are the called and the chosen and faithful. And when you see these things together, the called and the chosen and faithful, they're not angels. These are terms for the saints. And so they're returning with the Lord. At the rapture, Christ returns for the saints. At the second coming, he returns with the saints. And so from early on, pre-tribulationists have made this case. One's returning with, uh, for, one's returning with. And so even though we can conceive of the, the, that whole period is sort of the coming of Christ in a sense, in rescue, in judgment, and then as king, uh, a lot of people say, look, you believe in two second comings. No, I don't. I believe in one second coming. How many, times did, how many times did Christ come in the first coming? Just once. How long did that take? 33 years? 33 years was the first coming. Can't I have a seven-year second coming? Okay, so he's coming in judgment. He's coming in rescue. He's coming in wrath. And he's coming as king. So I think that you have to distinguish the coming for and the coming with the saints. Um, and I think the closer you get to squeezing these things together and making them a single event, becomes less and less plausible. So I don't think it demands a pre-trib rapture, but it definitely becomes less and less likely that the with and the for are all just the same thing. 
doesn't seem to make much sense. We need some time to get on the horses, okay? And I need to learn how to ride a horse. I fell off last time I tried. Okay, then you have, so I've weakened even the mid-trib here. The imminent return of Christ, I think this is pretty powerful. The church is told to wait with eager anticipation. We're longing for the coming of Christ who's gonna, in fact, You've turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God to wait his son from heaven who saves us from the wrath to come. That's what we're waiting for. And that can happen at any moment. He's coming soon. He's coming quickly. This is what the term means. Suddenly, like a thief in the night. Uh, excuse me, uh, Mr. Spiegel, I'm going to be robbing your house next week uh, right around between 11 and 12 in the evening. So you may want to be ready, you know, load your gun, whatever. No, a thief in the night, it means he's going to come suddenly, the imminency of this. Nobody knows the day or the hour. You know, hacks and quacks notwithstanding, you always have books coming out dating it. I get them mailed to me. You know, when you're teaching at Dallas Seminary, head of the theology department, you got book, truckloads of self-published books setting dates and times. Um, I just file them in the round file folder called the trash can. But uh, nobody knows when this is going to happen. It's imminent, any moment. So in any moment, rapture requires that no specific signs have to happen before it takes place. It's going to happen at any moment. You'll never know when it's going to happen. It's going to come like a thief in the night. Right after this prophecy is fulfilled, and that prophecy is fulfilled, and this person rises to power. And then, besides all those signs, you'll never know when it's going to... You see, it just doesn't make as much sense. I think only a pre-tribulation rapture fully satisfies the imminent return of Christ. So I think that weakens the mid-trib argument. Now some people say, well, things aren't that bad the first half of the tribulation. And so people can be like, well, that kind of seems like a sign, or maybe not, or he could be the, but, but second half they'll really know. And so they try to still hold to imminency with even a mid-tribulation rapture, but I don't think it ultimately works. And then finally, this is more an argument from silence, but sometimes silence is loud. You know, they were, uh, Pastor Daniel, he was pointing out how quiet it was. We were standing there in the room where I'm staying and I was listening. Where I live in Dallas, um, you always hear some highway. It's very, very noisy. And uh, Daniel commented on how quiet it was here. And I said, it's very loud, very loud silence. It's noticeable in other words. So many people have pointed out, look, the church is over and over addressed. The church, the church, the church, seven churches, Revelation 1 through uh, 3. And then in the description of that which is coming after these things, the seals and the trumpets and the bulls, the church, word church is never used. It's not like John didn't know the word church. He used it a dozen times. Now he gets to hear it. Church not mentioned. Now there are saved people what we call tribulation saints, those who hold to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, those who refuse to take the mark on their hand and their forehead, right hand and forehead, those who, right, tying them specifically, specifically to events in the tribulation period. So those are tribulation saints, we know that, but church is never specifically mentioned. And then you get to the very end, 19 through 22, those who return with Christ are the called, chosen, and faithful. So, Notice, uh, this is my outline of Revelation, but from four all the way to 19, there's no mention of the church. Saints are mentioned, but in relationship to events of the tribulation itself. And so I think this is a, 
given everything else, this makes sense, in other words. It's good corroborative evidence that the rapture of the church, uh, it, the rapture of the church before the tribulation, I think explains this, why the church is not mentioned in the book of Revelation. So, there we go. So, no mention of the church. Oh, sorry. Um, no mention of the church. So, the last trumpet, rescue from wrath, post-trib plus millennial problem, removal, removal of the restrainer in Second Thessalonians 2, the return with and for the saints, the imminent return of Christ, the missing church. I think all of these, my, in my understanding of this, the way I put this together, I think it obliterates a post-trib and a pre-wrath rapture as not able to really stand under these various arguments and considerations. I think it severely weakens the mid-trib rapture. And I think only the pre-tribulation rapture is able to stand under all of the, uh, the various arguments. Tomorrow, and I am finished, tomorrow we're going to present a, for probably 99.9% .9 of you, is an argument you've never heard before. Not because I made it up, but because it's been forgotten. What I'm going to show you is that there is a, an exegetical argument, that is an interpretation of a particular passage of scripture which actually places the rapture prior to the seven-year tribulation, which I am going to show was the original exegetical argument of John Nelson Darby and Kelly and some of these early uh, pre-tribulationists in the 19th century, which since then, I mean, a lot can happen in 100 years, but since then it's been completely, almost completely forgotten and abandoned. But I think it's worth another look, and we're going to present that uh, tomorrow, and it is new to you, but it is actually very, very old, and as far as I can tell, this is the thing that pushed these early pre-tribulationists over the edge to embrace a full pre-trib rapture, and so we'll deal with that tomorrow, the original argument for the pre-trib rapture of the church. Thank you very much. I appreciate your attentiveness.